Would you please uh, take the Word of God and turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, and we're going to be in uh, Psalm 9 this evening. We are going through the book of Psalms, and uh, it's not going to be necessarily one uh, sermon per psalm. Sometimes it takes us a little longer to deal with one psalm, and we already dealt last week with the first verse, the first and the last verse, looked at an overview of Psalm 9. Uh, This time we're going to look at some further details in Psalm uh, chapter 9. And so we're going to begin reading in just a moment. Before we read and stand, uh, in our last study of this psalm, we spent some time looking into uh, praising the Lord. We talked about the perspective of praise. Then we went into the particulars of praise. What are some of the characteristics of praise? And then we talked about the progression of praise. And we may note how The psalm begins with praising the Lord, and it ends with the insignificance of the nations of the world. And I mentioned that the end of the psalm is only possible with the beginning. And he begins by looking at the Lord, the Most High, and by the end of the psalm, he mentions uh, in the last verse, he says, Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. And if we don't turn our sight towards the Lord, I think that we might become overwhelmed by the nations of the world. But if we look to the Lord, then the nations of the world will seem insignificant when we compare them to the Lord. Now, before we read this ninth psalm, we're going to read the psalm in in its entirety I think it would be helpful to first make note of some clear distinctions that we find in this psalm. And I'm going to give us the distinctions before we read so that we can see them when we read. Now, there are three parties that are identified in this psalm. Now, what I mean by parties, at first I thought groups of people, but there's really three parties involved. I didn't mention groups of people, and I... Uh, We're going to see why, but we're going to ask three questions about those three parties. The first question is, who are these parties? Who are they? Then, what do these parties do? And thirdly, what is their end? So, who are they? What do they do? And what is their end? Now, let me give them to you and, and by answering those questions, and then we're going to read it together. Uh, having that understanding before we read it. And so the first party that we identified in this psalm, Psalm 9, is the heathen. That's the first group of people. Now, who are they? In this psalm, they are called enemies. They are called heathen. They are called the wicked. Uh, It is mentioned their cities and their memorials. Uh, The word also the world is referred to. Uh, The people and the nations. Uh, That's who they are. But then we see what do they do? Well, the Bible mentions that they turn back, they are hateful, and they forget God. That's how they are. That's what they do. And then we note in this psalm their end. Their end is described as this. They are rebuked, destroyed, put out. They have a perpetual end. Their foot is taken in their own net. They are ensnared. They are turned into hell. They are in fear. That's their end. But then we, so that's the heathen. That's the first group of people. 
But then we go to a second group of people, and I call the second party as the humble. So the first group is the heathen, the second group is the humble. Who are they? Well, in this text, we identify them as the oppressed, as those that are troubled, as those that are in suffering, as those that are the humble, the needy, and the poor. That's how they're identified in the psalm. Now, what do they do? Well, throughout the psalm, we're going to find that they praise the Lord, they rejoice in the Lord, they know the name of the Lord, they trust in the Lord, they seek the Lord, and they declare the Lord's doing. That's what they do. What is their end? Here is their end. They are not forgotten. They are lifted up from the gates of death, and their expectation is not going to perish. That's their end. So we have the heathen, then we have the humble, and the third party is not a group, it's a person, and that is the Holy One. That's the Lord. Who is He? Well, in this text, He is referred to as the Lord. He is referred to as the Most High. He is referred to as the One who has an overwhelming presence. He is referred to as the Ruler, and He is referred to as the One who endures forever. What does he do? Well, in this psalm, he has marvelous works. He sits on his throne judging. He rebukes. He destroys. He ministers judgment and uprightness. He is a refuge and he extends mercy. That's what he does. And what is his end? Now, the only reason I say that, because that's the question for the heathen, that's the question for the humble, but here's the question, what is his end? Well, he has no end. According to verse 7, he, he, he is, um, notice verse 7, it says, uh, but the Lord shall endure forever. So he has no end, but he does ensure the end of both the heathen and the humble. So these are the three groups, of the three parties that we identify in this psalm. So let's keep those questions in mind as we read through that because we go back and forth. We talk about the, the heathen, we talk about the humble, we talk about the Lord, and they're all interspersed. But those are the three groups. Who are they? What do they do? And what is their end? So with those questions on those three parties... Now let's read it together. So hopefully that will give us a little bit of help. So let's stand together for the reading of Psalm 9 out of reverence for the Word of God. Psalm 9, verse 1. I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O thou most high. When mine enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. For thou hast maintained my right and my cause, thou saddest in the throne judging right. Thou hast rebuked the heathen, thou hast destroyed the wicked, thou hast put out their name forever and ever. O thou enemy, destructions are come to a perpetual end, and thou hast destroyed cities, their memorial is perished with them. But the Lord shall endure forever, he hath prepared his throne for judgment, he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge to the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, 
For thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. Sing praises to the Lord which dwelleth in Zion. Declare among the people his doings. When he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth them. He forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider my trouble which I suffer of them that hate me. Thou that liftest me up from the gates of death that I may show forth all thy praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in thy salvation. The heathen are sung down in the pit that they, are, that they made, in the net which they hid, uh, which they hid in their own, is their own foot taken. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Haggion, Selah. The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the heathen be judged in thy sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. I'd like to bring your attention to verse 2 and verse 14. Notice verse 2. I will be glad and rejoice in thee. And then notice verse 14 at the um, end of the verse. I will rejoice in thy salvation. Now I made the point last time. There are two things that the psalmist declares. He declares who God is, and he declares what God has done. And here, in keeping with that, we see that the psalmist rejoices first in who God is. I will rejoice in thee, and here in what God has done. I will rejoice in thy salvation. Now, the context of rejoicing is what? Trouble and suffering in the world. So I'd like to uh, preach a message that I've entitled this evening, Rejoicing When the Nations Forget God. Rejoicing When the Nations Forget God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for your word. Help us, Lord, to do exactly what we find this psalm is doing in the midst of nations that have forgotten God. We know that that is not something that is new to the 21st century. As long as there's been societies, there's been rebels and a world that's against God. But yet, Lord, help us to be able to rejoice, though nations have forgotten you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I mentioned here, the context of the rejoicing in this psalm is both trouble and suffering. And this trouble and suffering comes... By the hand of the wicked, the psalmist then turns and he looks more broadly at the world than the nations that forget God. As we look through this psalm, there seems to be a progression. He begins by talking about his personal enemies. Then he goes and he talks about the wicked, the ungodly, those who turn their backs against God. So, you talk about the individual enemy, then the group of the wicked, of the unrighteous, those who forget God. And then we go more broadly to the world or to the nations of the world. And so there's a fit progression that we have here 
where the psalmist recognizes that this is the way it is. This is the way it is. The world is as it is, and as Christians today, we should not be surprised, we should not be overcome, and we should not think that the state of the world and the nations is anything new to our particular time in history. Now with those things in mind, when we think about rejoicing, what this psalmist is able to do, he is able to rejoice in the midst of enemies of the wicked who are prevailing in his day, but ultimately more broadly at the wickedness of the world and specifically at the fact that the nations have forgotten God. Now, with those things in mind, we have to identify there are really two great errors that are found within the Christian world. Uh, there are two types of extremes that we have to avoid at all costs. Let me mention those. First of all, the Christianity that thinks that it can reform or improve the world. Okay, That's the first error within uh, Christendom. Uh, it is a Christianity that thinks that it can reform and improve the world. This is the philosophy that often embraces the world and seeks to change the world by a gradual influence. But there is a second error, and that is the Christianity that thinks that it must be completely removed from the world altogether. Okay, That's another error. Uh, this philosophy attempts to be completely disconnected from any interaction with the world, and those types of Christians become hermits. Now, those are two extremes, and those two extremes have existed as long as Christianity has been around. There are those who think that somehow they can change the world and make it a Christian world. On the other hand, there are those who understand perhaps what the Bible teaches, that things are going to get worse and worse, but yet they remove themselves and disconnect themselves completely from the world, that they become hermits and they want to not be in the world. Now today, there are certain Christian sects that have uh, bought compounds in different parts of the world and they bring all of their, uh, I guess, group into this compound and they have no connection, no contact with the outside world. They, uh, and by the way, that's a great error. Why? Because uh, the corruption of the world is not due just because the world is as it is, but because of men. You see, you can't take the world out of a young heart that is born in sin and degradation. And so fundamentally, there's a misunderstanding about human composition. What is man? And so we can't look at those two extremes when we think here about the world. Now, as I was reading and studying for Psalm 9, I thought about, I've been reading and studying First John, and I thought to myself, this goes very well with the epistle of 1 John. And there's a reason for that. Now remember, I established several things in this psalm. The psalmist twice says, I rejoice in the Lord, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord, and I'm going to rejoice in uh, the salvation that God has given to me. And the context is suffering, suffering is at the hand of the heathen, 
and the heathen is in this world, and the nations that have forgotten God. Now, if you turn with me to 1 John, let's turn there in the New Testament to the epistle of 1 John. Now, the epistle of 1 John, you can think in the same way at the beginning of this book and at the end of this book. And if we could ask ourselves, all right, what is the book of 1 John about? The book of 1 John is really about how to have joy in the world. That's what it's about. Now, if you are not certain about this, let me show you. 1 John, notice verse 1. Now, this is the opening of the letter, and he says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, here it is, the reason why we're writing this unto you, that your joy may be full. So here at the onset, we have a reason for the letter. This letter is written so that the joy of the believers who lived in that time might have fullness of joy. Now, what's the context of this fullness of joy? Well, turn to the last chapter, chapter 5, and notice with me verse 19. All right? So why was this epistle written? Chapter 1, verse 4, why was this epistle written? That's the question. So that we might have fullness of joy. What's the context of this? Notice chapter 5, verse 19. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. All right, so now we have uh, some, some context for us. And by the way, throughout this epistle, he talks about the world. For example, in chapter 2, he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. He um, mentions in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. And so the idea today that somehow the Christian can reform the world and make it a better, a better world is, is antithesis to the Word of God. The world doesn't know the Christian who is in God. He cannot know why, because he is in God. And the world does not receive that which is in God. He mentions in chapter 3, verse 13, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. There is something wrong with the Christianity that the world loves. Let me say that again. There is something wrong with the Christianity that the world loves. It is impossible for the world to love those who are in God. Now, chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so there's a clear separation in this epistle, right? He, he, he says at the beginning, I'm writing you this letter 
Because I want you to have fullness of joy, and yet at the same time we understand that we are in the world. And the world hates God. And the world hates those who are in God. And we understand how the world works. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And so we see very clearly that he establishes a distinction between those who are in God and those who are in the world. In chapter 5, in verse 4, he says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. And so there is a specific group of people who are said that they are not of the world, is those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you believe that today? Then let me tell you, you are not of the world. And the world will hate you. Why? Because if you believe that, then you are of God. In this epistle, it says you are born of God. So he says then in verse 19 of chapter 5, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. So here's the truth. We cannot, we should not think that we can reform or improve the world. But neither should we think uh, or, or try to become completely removed from the world altogether and in a sense become hermits and completely disconnected uh, from the world. Uh, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. Now this epistle is written, now think about that, the whole world lieth in wickedness. Don't think you can improve it. But you and I can have fullness of joy. You see, that's the wonderful thing about the Christian life. That the whole world lies in wickedness, and yet there are those who are in Christ, who are the children of God, who are born of God, who are able in this same world to have fullness of joy. Now, with those things in mind, let's go back, hold your place because we're going to come back here to 1 John. I find some good parallels there between the two. But go back with me to Psalm 9. In uh, uh, Psalm 9... In the, midst of the, in the middle of the psalm, we, we find something that he does. Now, the structure of this psalm, as I mentioned before, right, we have three parties. You have the heathen, you have the humble, and then you have the holy one. And it kind of goes back and forth. And there doesn't seem to be a, an exact, uh, if you would, uh, a structure where we could say, all right, first we have this group, then we have this group, and then we have this group. It just, it mentions the three groups throughout, back and forth. But in the midst of that, sandwiched in the middle of all that, as he talks about his enemies, the heathen, uh, God will judge. By the way, there's an emphasis here throughout the psalm. The word uh, judge or judgment is mentioned six times in this psalm. Uh, verse 4, God is going to judge right. Uh, verse 7, uh, God sits on his throne for judgment. Verse 8, he shall judge the world. Uh, judgment of the people of uh, an uprightness. Uh, down in verse 16, the Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. And then verse 19, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail, let the heathen be judged in thy sight. And so there's an emphasis here on the judgment of God, that God, listen, God is not looking to reform the world, he's going to judge the world. That's the end. God is going to judge the world. It's going to happen. 
So with those things in mind, in the midst of all of this, so we have the heathen who forsake God, and the psalmist is struggling with being oppressed, with uh, suffering, with uh, being needy and poor, and he mentions all those things, uh, being identified as the humble, and so it seems that those who are in the world are prevailing, but yet he says in the midst of all this that God will judge. God has judged, and God will judge again. But in the midst of this, I think there are some identifying marks that help us to see how he can rejoice in the world. I want you to notice with me verse Verses 9 through 14. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in time of trouble. And here's where it begins. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. Sing praises to the Lord which dwelleth on Zion. Declare among the people his doings. When he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth them. He forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider my trouble which I suffer of them that hate me, that thou liftest me up from the gates of death, that I may show forth all thy praise in the gates of the, of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in thy salvation. So here's some elements, and I'm going to mention them to you. And we're going to find those same elements present in 1 John. The first thing that we see here is, okay, so these are those, this psalmist is part of this group, the humble, who are able to rejoice in the Lord while being in the world. Notice, this rejoicing is not a future rejoicing. It's a present rejoicing today. I will rejoice in thee. I will rejoice in my salvation. Who God is and what God has done for me. So here is the elements. First of all, these are they, those who are able to rejoice, are they who, notice, know the Lord. Do you notice verse, um, verse 10 with me? And they that know thy name. That's where it starts, by the way. How can anybody rejoice in the Lord? It begins with knowing Him. Knowing who the Lord is. Knowing the name of the Lord. The second thing we find that those who rejoice are not only they that know the Lord, but it is also they that trust the Lord. Notice, they that know thy name will put their trust in thee. Knowledge comes before faith. Those who know God trust Him. Knowledge comes before trust. If you don't know God, you're not going to trust Him. And then, notice, um, if we keep reading in verse 10, They that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. So they know the Lord, they trust the Lord, and they seek the Lord. That's what they do. And notice, immediately in the next verse, verse 11, he says, sing praise to the Lord, which dwelleth in Zion. Declare among the people His doings. How can the psalmist get to the place where he is praising the Lord? Because those three things are true about his life. He knows the Lord, he trusts the Lord, and he seeks the Lord. Let me ask you this. Do you know the Lord? Okay, if you know Him, do you trust Him? If you trust Him, do you seek Him? 
I believe those are the basic elements of being able to rejoice. This is what equips us to be able to rejoice in the world in which we are today. Now think about those three things. They know the Lord, they trust the Lord, and they seek the Lord. Now hold your place here and turn with me to 1 John. Let's go back to 1 John if you have your place there. One of the main things, what's one of the key words? Some of you, if you went, you took, took a, a class maybe in 1 John or you've read through 1 John, what's one of the key words throughout 1 John that keeps coming back over and over again? Okay, love is a good one. What's another? What's another word that keeps coming back over and over again? Let me, let me read some verses and then we'll see if we can identify that word. Uh, notice uh, verse First uh, 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 John, let's uh, chapter two, verse three. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. Notice verse five. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily the love of God is perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. Notice into chapter three, verse one. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Behold, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when, we shall, when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Notice verse 19 of chapter 3. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Notice verse 24. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him, and hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given unto us. Notice chapter 4, verse 13. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. Notice in chapter 5, verse 15. And if we know that, that he hear us, Whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desire Him. Notice verse 18. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. Notice verse 20. And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that, that is true, and we are of Him that is true even in His Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So what, what's the word? No. Throughout this whole epistle, he's talking about, right, you want to have fullness of joy at the beginning. Do you want to know how to have fullness of joy? This is the reason I'm writing you this. By the end, he says, we know that the whole world lies in wickedness, but throughout this epistle, why does he keep emphasizing? We know this. We know this. We know this. You have to come back to what? To what the truth is about God, to what the truth is about the world. You know those things. And so he is reminding them. You see, one of the great troubles that, that comes in us not being able to rejoice in the Lord is not knowing. Not that we are ignorant. Notice throughout this epistle, I'm not giving you anything new. I'm just reminding you why. Because the whole world lies in wickedness. And when the whole world lies in wickedness, we tend to look at the world we tend to be discouraged by the world. We, we, we may come become over, we we're afraid that we might become overcome by the world. And he keeps telling them, don't you know this? Don't you know this? Don't you know this? And he basically tells them, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. 
So we find that fullness of joy in the epistle of 1 John comes by what we know. Because throughout this epistle, he reminds them, don't you know this? Don't you know this? Don't you know this? And the psalmist in Psalm 9 does the same. You see, they that know thy name. You see, the rejoicing that we have, it's important for us to understand that the rejoicing that we talk about, when we talk about rejoicing and the joy of the Lord is our strength. Here he talks about, I'm writing you this epistle so that you might have fullness of joy. It is important for us to understand that joy is not a passing emotion. Joy and rejoicing, true joy and rejoicing is always based on knowledge. Our ability to rejoice is based on what we know. But see, the world is used to what type of joy? The joy and the thrill of the moment. You know, we, you have uh, children. Um, you find a child who is p- perfectly content to play with its own you know, group of toys here and they sit in the living room and they're playing t- together and they're playing fine by themselves and they're, they're having a great time. And you could say, wow, look, at here's a happy child. But then all of a sudden you have another sibling that comes up the steps and the sibling comes with a new toy. And then the child sees that other toy. He was perfectly content to be there with this toys and not to be disturbed. But then he sees something else and then all of a sudden that happiness is gone. Why? Because you see something that you want that's better. And it's a moment. And it's interesting if you look at the, the, the child who maybe if the child is able to get that toy that the other sibling had and is able to take it, then there's that moment of thrill that they're happy that they have that toy. And that's not what we're talking about. The joy and rejoicing that we're talking about is not a, 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 an empty, mo- momentous a moment of thrill and happiness. That's not what joy is. It is always based on knowledge. So you know what that means? If we're going to rejoice, we have to think. Think about what? Think about what we know. The truth about the Lord. The truth about the world. The truth about who we are. We are of God, little children. He reminds that through this epistle. So understand that if there's going to be any rejoicing in this world, it's going to be based on what we know. The knowledge. And so he says in Psalm 9, they that know thy name. The next step is they that know thy name will put their trust in thee. So we know the Lord. They know the Lord, but then they trust the Lord. Now, by the way, as I mentioned, you can't trust the Lord unless you first know the Lord. Now, he is worthy to be trusted. But here's what happens. We don't trust him when we forget who He is. But when we are reminded by our knowledge of who He is, then we can trust Him. Now, turn if, you're, if you've been going back and forth, if you go back to 1 John, and chap, go with me to chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Notice what he says in verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begot loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love that, that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. And this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. 
and whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our what? Faith. Oh, but, but do you see what he says in the opening verses? He says, now remember, uh, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Then you are born of God, if you believe that. He says, everyone that loveth him, and there's the proof of, you know that if you, if you love him and you obey his commandments, that you, you know that you're, you're born of God. And so he, he says, all right, here's what we know. We know this to be true. And so, but yet we're in the world. The whole world lies in wickedness. How can we have fullness of joy? It's not just what we know, but then we have to believe and trust in the one in whom we know. Why? Because the one in whom we know, it is not just what we know about him, but what we know about not just who he is, but we know what he has done. That's what we rejoice in. First, in who he is, and secondly, in what he has done. Now here he says, Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Now, now notice here, uh, he says in verse 5, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, it's not because we have overcome the world of our own power and own sheer will. It's because Jesus Christ himself has overcome the world. And because he has overcome the world, we believe by faith, right? Psalm 9, God's going to judge. And in this present time, it may not seem that God is intervening in the world. Again, God is not trying to reform the world. He's not trying to make the world a better place. He's going to judge the world. And we must be reminded that he has already overcome the world. You see, rejoicing happens based on what we know and what we're trusting in. They, those who rejoice in Psalm 9, they know the Lord, they trust the Lord. But then there's a third element. The Bible mentions in Psalm 9, it is them that seek thee. They seek the Lord. So they know the Lord, they trust the Lord, but then they seek the Lord. Now, go back with me. Uh, it's interesting how uh, the epistle of 1 John begins as he talks about fullness of joy. He's going to begin with one of the most basic things of of. Christian living. Notice what he says, 1 John 1, verse 5. This then is the message which we have heard, have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now he just said that after saying, I'm writing you these things that you might have, that your joy might be full. Notice verse 6. Here is where it begins. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. What is he saying? He's saying, basically, are you seeking the Lord? Are you seeking to have fellowship with the Lord? You are born of God. You're a child of God. You know that Jesus is the Son of God. We know those things, but he begins, interestingly, as he wants them to have fullness of joy in this world, he says you must keep yourself seeking the Lord. To be in constant fellowship with Him. He says, verse 7, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with Him. Now notice here, notice the wording. If we walk in the light as He is in the light. Notice, it's not... Walk in the light as He's walking in the light. No, He is in the light itself. We have to get there. 
We have to walk where the Lord is. Where is that? That, that comes by seeking Him. Well, the first thing it says, if, if you're going to seek Him and you're going to be where He is, then you have to confess your sins. So what I'm saying here is, I want us to be very careful because you could read, we don't have time here, this is not a study on 1 John, but the point I'm making here is that seeking the Lord in 1 John is very specific. It's not, oh, I know God, I trust the Lord, and I'm seeking Him. No, he begins by saying, you're going to seek Him, then you're going to confess your sins when they come. Because if you don't do that, then you don't have fellowship with the Lord, and that means you're not seeking Him. Now, put that back to, to Psalm 9. We're talking about the psalmist who is able to rejoice in the Lord. He's writing this epistle to say, I want you to have fullness of joy. And he says, this is what you know. Trust in the one you know. But if you're going to seek Him and have fullness of joy, then you have to confess your sins. Now, I don't have time to go, but chapter 2 and chapter 3 goes through a bunch of things. He talks about loving the brethren. He talks about being faithful to the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And so there's some specific things. Some are theological, some are practical in nature. But he says, if you want to have fullness of joy, then you must faithfully seek the Lord in those specific areas. Those are, the, I believe, the three basic elements of God's people being able to rejoice in the Lord. They know the Lord, they trust the Lord, and they seek the Lord. Now, let's go back to Psalm 9. <clears throat> I want to see here, what is the, the outcome? Here is why this is important. We live in a world that has everything backwards. And Christians also, because often we pattern our lives after the world, we often have things backwards. And sometimes we say, well, I want to be happy. And this is what we pursue. I, I just want to be happy. And that's why many Christians get in trouble, because their goal is happiness. And they find themselves misguided. Why? Because they follow their hearts. No, the rejoicing that we find in Psalm 9 is the product of what he says he does. So verse 10, They that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. Sing praise to the Lord which dwelleth in Zion. Declare among the people his doings. When he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth them. He forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider my trouble which I suffer of them that hate me. Thou that liftest me up from the gates of death, that I may show forth all thy praise in the gates of the daughters of Zion, I will rejoice in thy salvation. So notice he says, we're going to know this. He know, I know this. I'm going to trust in the Lord because of what I know to be true about God. And therefore, I'm going to seek the Lord even though I'm in the midst of trouble. And in the midst of trouble because I know this and I trust God and I seek God, I will sing and I will rejoice. So, those who know the Lord and trust the Lord and seek the Lord will then, there's three things that come out of that. Here in our text, they first praise the Lord. They declare the Lord. And they rejoice in the Lord. Do you notice? Let's identify those. So verse 10, they that know thy name 
will put their trust in thee. For thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. Okay, so here is the practical thing that the psalmist is rejoicing. Now what comes out of that? Sing praises to the Lord which dwelleth in Zion. Declare among the people his doing. So he is praising God. That's the outcome of what? Of what he knows, of who he trusts, and who he's seeking after. So he's able to praise because of those things. Notice he says in verse uh, 12, When he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth them, and forgetteth not the cry of the humble. So those who are going through suffering, he does not forget them. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider my trouble, which I suffer of them that hate me, that thou liftest me up from the gates of death. And so... Uh, notice what, what comes out of that, that I may show forth all thy praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. And so, at the end of verse 11, he also says, Declare among the people his doings. You see, he's able to praise the Lord, but then he's able to declare the Lord. I'm going to declare the Lord and who he is and, and what he's done. In the midst of suffering. In the midst of this struggle that I'm going through. And then, in verse 14, he says, I will rejoice in thy salvation. So here's three things that, that we ought to do. Do we want to rejoice in the Lord? Do we want to, as I mentioned, rejoicing when the nations forget God? Man, you could look all around us, and I really don't have to go into details. You live in the world. You know what it's like out there. You know where the direction things are going. But I want to encourage you to be able to rejoice in the Lord and to bring your attention to three things. There are things that you need to know and to be reminded of. And based upon what you know to be true, you need to trust God. That He is still in control, and then in the end, He's going to judge the world. And so what we have to focus on today is what? Seeking the Lord. And when we do that in this world, we're able to sing praise. We're able to declare the wonderful works of God, and we're able to rejoice in Him. You see, Bible preaching in this message, sometimes people may come to church and may say, oh, I'm going to come to church because uh, I want the preacher to preach the greatest message I've ever heard so that he can fix me. And the truth is, I can't fix you. But I can give you guidance to help you fix yourself. If you're not rejoicing in the Lord, the Bible identifies what you need to do. You need to know certain things about God and His Word. You need to trust then in what you know. And with a consuming passion, you need to seek the Lord. And that's going to involve some specific things. And when you do those things, you see... Sometimes we'll bother us. Well, why, am I, why do I not feel like praising God? Why am I not declaring the wonderful works of God? Why am I not being a witness to the world? Why am I not able to rejoice in the Lord? Because you're not knowing, trusting, and seeking. But when you do those things, the outcome of that is praise, declaration, and rejoicing. So let's focus on those first things. The fruit will come because that's what comes when we do the first things. And so may the Lord help us to be able to rejoice in the midst of nations that I've forgotten the Lord. Unless we forget, I'm not going to go into all the details, but the epistle of 1 John 
was written during a time of intense persecution. One of the last epistles that was written before the book of Revelation, to study the time of uh, the world at that time, Christians going through intense persecution. More intense probably than we will ever know. And yet he tells them, I want you to have fullness of joy. Is it possible that we today have fullness of joy? I say it is. Well, let's do what God's Word tells us to do, that may we rejoice in the Lord. Let's pray.